Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. It's good to have everybody here with us this afternoon. I don't know how many people had the opportunity to print out a source sheet before joining us today, but even if you didn't, I'll walk you through the sources that we're going to do. They're such long sources, these particular rabbinic ones that I chose, that we're going to mostly walk through them in the English, just because the Aramaic itself is pretty tricky, and they are mostly in Aramaic rather than Hebrew. Um, But I want to start by telling you what brought these sources to mind and why not study the Parsha this week. has to do a little bit with the current events that took place over these last few days. But also just um, this past week, I ran the convention that I've been the chair or co-chair of over the past four years. It's a midwinter retreat that's been going on for actually over 40 years for cantors and sacred music makers usually gather in the Palm Springs area. Um, So it's been going on longer than I've been alive. I mean, nearly 50 years, I think at this point. And uh, it's been uh, a real respite for cantors who are hardworking folk in their own positions and go to be with colleagues. It's a certain percent professional development. It's some chances for music sharing, some for spiritual renewal, uh, some golf, <laughs> just sort of depends on the year. And this year, of course, we couldn't be in person together, but we pulled together a virtual retreat One of the colleagues who brought me in to being a co-chair, I've really gotten to know deeply over the past several years, and I consider them to be a mentor, and I also consider them to be a friend. They've been in the field a lot longer than I have, and we've developed a a mentorship, but also a, a deep friendship. And we've also discovered that we have just radically opposing political perspectives on the world. We each consider ourselves, and I think rightfully so, pretty informed people about the world. This person has a partner or spouse who ran for political office. I uh, pretty much finished my degree in political science before I started down the path to Jewish studies and continue to have sort of an avocation in the world of political science. I love it uh, and follow it closely. And we come out thinking very different things even reading similar articles uh, and looking at the same numbers. And this past Saturday night, right? So before anything unfolded this past week, we took out two and a half hours to just sit with each other on the phone. This was before we ran our whole retreat together and just be together on the phone talking about everything that's on our mind politically hear each other out, understand each other's perspective, be each other's chavruta, and try to try to orient one another to each other's perspective a little bit. Just listen, hear each other out, and be present to it. It's not easy. It's really not easy, but it helps that we come from a place of deeply, deeply understanding each other's perspectives and respecting that we are both uh, looking at the world from a place of similar value. And that we see each other through the perspective of incredible humanity. I start from there. Our tradition has a lot to say about what to do when you come out a victor in a war, 
in a political situation, just in any kind of a squabble, in any kind of an encounter that happens in the world. And I've been thinking a lot about that. There have been a lot of clashes, I think would be like the overall umbrella term that I would use. We've just been clashing as a country. And in these clashes, whether they're actually at the polls or whether they're clashes on Capitol Hill, we have been clashing and there have actually been miniature battles and victories. And I wonder, we wonder at the end of each of those, what do we do about the celebration of those victories? Now, they're not actually wars and they're not actually battles for the most part, although this past week, there's a lot to say about the need to mourn the loss of life that took place. Right? There's, there's more to be said about that in particular. But for the most part, we're not talking about actual battles and wars. But we are talking about what to do when the people who we see as our enemies, our political enemies, the people who we see as our anti-Semitic enemies, how, what do we do when we're victorious? What do we do when we actually see ourselves as having, um, as, as having, uh, as having won? Not to say that we've won all of our battles yet, but what do we do when we win? And I've been asking that question of my Chavrutzad, the one who I mentioned earlier, and we've been studying some of these texts and I want to bring them to you. So here, here are a few. We won't get through all of them, but I want to look at a few of them together. One comes from Masechet Megillah. And uh, Purim is not as far away as you would think. It's just at the end of February. We're, we're planning it already. Yikes. Uh, and this comes from an invented encounter between Mordechai and Haman. I love this invented dialogue. Okay, so here's the invented dialogue that happens. Some of these I'll have you read out loud and some of these I'll just read. Here, here's how it goes. After Haman trimmed his hair, Haman dressed Mordechai in the royal garments. Remember, this is after Mordechai gets to actually be the one who's put up on the horse and Haman is deeply disappointed in all this, right? He thinks he's going to be the one who's put up on the horse, but he's not. It's Mordechai and he's mortified. Haman is mortified. Haman then said to him, mount the horse and ride, right? Go ahead and get up there. Mordechai said to him, I am unable as my strength has waned from the days of fasting that I observed. Haman then stooped down before him and Mordechai ascended on him. Can you picture it, right? Mordechai sort of steps up on Haman's back in order to get up on the horse. And as he was ascending the horse, Mordechai gave Haman a kick. Haman said to him, said to Mordechai, is it not written for you? Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. This is a quote from Proverbs from Mishlei. And Mordechai said back to Haman, I love Haman is quoting Mishlei to, to Mordechai. Um, and Mordechai said back to Haman, this statement applies only to Jews, but with regard to you, it is written and you shall tread upon their high places. So he quotes back to him straight from Devarim from the end of the Torah. You should tread upon your like your your enemies uh, high places. That is the idol worshippers high places. Right. So this is one perspective on what we should be allowed to do to our enemies when we are victorious. Remember, this isn't even the end of the Purim story. This is just that miniature victory that Mordechai has over Haman. What does this text have to say 
about what we are allowed to do when we are victorious and miniature in this personal encounter. What's the perspective right here? If you stop the story here, what's the takeaway? Anyone want to give us the, the casual takeaway here? What are we allowed to do according to Mordechai's takeaway? I think Mordechai is saying, listen, among my people, I have a, basically a social contract, Jew to Jew, right? Mishli is talking about among my people, I shouldn't rejoice when my enemy, somebody with whom I have a clash, falls down. But you've crossed a line and you are not within my breach. You're not within my contract, okay? And you've crossed a line. I'm not beholden to treat you in the way that that contract applies to you. And by the way, this is another way of saying, don't you quote Michelet back to me, you fill in the blank word here, right? So you're not inside this this bubble, this contract. Like once you cross outside that line and once you are not inside my either Israel or Crovey Yisrael, my people, I, I don't have to be beholden to that. I can go ahead and I can kick you while you're down, literally says this story. That's one take. We don't have more time to go more deeply into that, but that's one take on this story. I want us to leap to Sanhedrin, which is the next text I stuck in here. I picked this order on purpose, but anybody could have ordered the source sheet the way that Marshall Kramer could tell me that I picked in the wrong order later and we'll find out. All right. So Sanhedrin 39b, we're actually not going to start with the Rav, the Rav Acha Barchanina story. We're going to kind of leap down a little bit. Uh, we're going to leap all the way to the story um, that goes on to the second page there. It's um, and, and then we're going to go on back to Megillah and, uh, You'll, you'll see why in a second. So we're going to say uh, for Rav Shmuel Bar Nachman. Do you see that right where the story starts? Rav Shmuel Bar Nachman. You can find it in the parallel Hebrew Aramaic uh, mishmash on the on the Hebrew Aramaic mishmash slide. Okay. Rav Shmuel Bar Nachman, Armar Rav Yonatan. My dichtiv, isn't it written? What, what is meant by? Okay, what's the, what's what's the meaning of the following? And one velo karav ze elze kol halayla. What what is this? What's the meaning of this verse that's going to come later? I think Parshat Bo. I think I got that right. Right, it's going to come in in chapter fourteen. We haven't quite gotten there even in next week's Parsha. So I guess I should have taught this next Saturday afternoon. But who knows if I'm on? Uh, what what is it meant that on that night, meaning the night where God's uh, angel of death passed over all the houses, Pesach, one didn't come near the other? What was meant there? There's this midrash that in that in that hour, beotasha'ah, bakshu malachea sharet lomar shira lifnei hakadosh baruchu. The the ministering angels said that they wanted to come and utter a song of praise before God. And he said, what? Don't come. I don't want to hear singing right now. Why doesn't God want to hear singing? Anyone who's familiar with this midrash or just reads to the end of this paragraph? Why is God not interested in singing? Because um, his, his, the Egyptians were drowning. God's creations are suffering. Jews, non-Jews, uh, people who hate Jews, people who don't hate Jews, 
people are suffering. God's creations are suffering. The Egyptians are drowning. The, a more detailed account of this story uh, is found uh, in um, in the following uh, piece in Megillah. I think I put it in the correct order uh, here, right? Um, in the following uh, piece from, uh, did I get that right? He does not want the song sung. Uh, let me see if I found that. If I put that piece in the right order. Correct. He uh, uh, Maybe I even took it out of there because it was just a repetition of the same exact thing. Okay. Um, so God does not want this song sung celebrating the downfall of uh, anybody, even even the downfall of uh, just other creatures, because it is a it is a, a pain to God to hear people celebrating. Um, so on the one hand, you have in Megillah a celebration of uh, a, a permission to kick the the wicked when they're down. Right. And on the other hand, we shouldn't sing when we're down. By the way, at the Pesach Seder, what is it that we do that is um, an act that yields to this will? Oh, God. Yeah, don't you just take the uh, you take uh, the wine cup and diminish your joy? Correct. It is the, the spilling of wine that we do in order to honor that God does not want us celebrating the suffering of any human creatures, precisely. Um, that is, that's exactly, um, that's exactly it. Um, okay, given the amount of time that we have left over here, um, I want us actually to leap over to Brachot, um, so that we have enough time to get to all the source. I want this, and I also want the shy held piece. So I'm getting greedy, and I want us to leap over to um, to this Brachot uh, piece, which is going to end with another reference to the singing at the um, at the sea. Uh, this is a piece that's all about Robbie Mayer and Bruria. Bruria, if you don't know about her is one of the women of the Talmud. She's just one of the women. There aren't that many women who are quoted by name in the Talmud and aren't just known as the wife. Um, and she is incredibly wise. And here she gets the final word in a beautiful piece about how we treat uh, the wicked. Um, is there actually somebody who might read for us just what's on this third page from Brachot 10a 2-4? From There Were These Hooligans? Uh, Marshall, go for it. This is where it says Bracho 10A, 2-4? Yeah, there were these okay. hooligans. Uh, there were these hooligans in Rabbi Meir's neighborhood who caused him a great deal of anguish. Rabbi Meir prayed for God to have mercy on them, that they should die. Rabbi Meir's wife, Ruria, said to him, What is your thinking? That is, on what basis do you pray for the death of these hooligans? Do you base yourself on the verse as it is written in Psalm 104, verse 35, let sins cease from the land, which you interpret to mean that the world would be better if the wicked were destroyed. But is it written, let sinners cease? Let sinners cease is written. Let sins cease is written. One should pray for an end to their transgressions, not for the demise of the transgressors themselves. Moreover, Good. So, God, pause there for just a moment, Marshall. 
let's just uh, stop at that at that point. Thank you for reading it to to there. So, Bruria is taking a piece from Psalms and holding it up to Rabbi Meir and saying, "You're praying for the death." of these hooligans who are causing you pain, who are causing you anguish. And she is saying the following. Psalms says, let chataim cease from the land. Let sin cease from the land. And you're praying, let chataim cease from the land. Let the sinners cease from the land. But that's not the idea. Wouldn't it be better? Isn't the idea that you should pray that they repent, right? I just want to be clear that we all understand what's happening there. Good. Marshall, you just read a little bit further and you'll see that she gives the example that we were just reading before. Moreover, go to the end. Moreover, go to the end of the verse where it says, and the wicked will be no more. If, as you suggest, transgression shall shall cease, refers to the demise of the evildoers. How is it possible that the wicked will be no more? That is, they will no longer be evil, question mark. Rather, pray for God to have mercy on them, that they should repent. As if they repent then, the wicked will be no more, as they will have repented. Rabbi Meir saw that Brewery was correct, and he prayed for God to have mercy on them, and they repented. Amazing. Right. So the story is the story is remarkably full for a uh, for a for a Talmud story. For those who study, um, for those who study uh, Bavli, for those who study Talmud Bavli, you'll notice the story. It could have stopped at several points, right? It didn't have to tell us that uh, Rabbi Meir agreed with Bruria. It didn't have to tell us that he actually did go through and pray to God. It didn't tell us that didn't have to tell us that God actually did have Rachamim have mercy on them. And it didn't also have to tell us that they repented, but it told us all of those things, which means that the compilers of the Talmud want us to know so deeply. Uh, I mean, it's cute. The, the, the construction is cute. It's, it's, it's beautiful, even um, the way that it's constructed around this verse. And I love that they put it in the mouth of Bruria. And I love that they put it in the challenge of this gorgeous chavruta between Rabbi Meir and his wife, Bruria, who are, who are a wonderful couple throughout the Talmud. Uh, but what is great here is this challenge that we all wrestle so deeply with, which is that we want when we, we are so tempted to see people who are causing us tremendous anguish and to say, can't they just go away? Can't they just go away? And Bruria says, that's not what we're supposed to be praying for. We are supposed to be praying that they choose to live a different way. We are supposed to be praying that they live life a different way, which, by the way, is harmonious with the previous piece about God wanting not to hear the angels sing in celebration of, of the destruction of human life. We're not interested 
in celebrating even evil people disappearing from the face of the earth. That's not our pursuit in the world is to vanquish evil people. We want to vanquish sins. Would somebody read Rabbi Shai Held's piece from the bottom of that same page where Marshall just finished? Would somebody do us the, the favor of reading that piece to end this learning? The ideal? If not, I can go ahead and read it. I'll read. The ideal and the best case scenario is for the wicked man who is ill to have both his body healed and his soul transformed. When that seems impossible, say because the person in question has a truly intractable personality disorder, then I think it is best to pray that Hashem do whatever Hashem deems necessary to prevent the wicked person from enacting his wicked plans or from further damaging and endangering others. We should not dictate to Hashem the means of salvation Hashem will use. We should only pray for the salvation and leave those decisions in God's hands. So what I love, what I love about Shai Held's last piece here is that it answers a final lingering question for me, which is, but what if I, what if I need to protect myself in my anguish? There are true victims in this world of other people's torture. Right? We're not just talking about theoretical evil. There are people in this world who are, who are deeply victimized either by individual torture or by movements of torture, uh, by, by movements of, of, uh, that, that create victims in their pathways of evil. And Chai Held is saying that it's okay to pray that God remove that kind of evil from this world, but that we take ourselves out of, <laughs> remove ourselves from dictating the means by which that's done so that that blood is not, uh, you know, meta metaphorically, that blood is not on our hands, that we are not praying uh, for the death of those individuals such that it leaves a margin of error there that people might repent, that people might choose a better way. All those texts exist in our tradition. Our texts preserve the fact that we are sometimes tempted to kick our enemies in the rear. Literally, that is what is preserved in our tradition. And I think there's a reason that it sits there in our books. I understand it. Our texts are rabbis. They understand that tradition. And I appreciate the wisdom and the value in our tradition to push us to pray hard that instead of human beings being vanquished from our midst that it is chata'im that it's evil deeds that disappear so that human souls can remain among us both those who are within our covenant and those who are outside of it so thank you for learning these texts with me and i would love to learn them some more and i pray for a much 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 more peaceful week you have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.